0: Right, folks today we have episode 10 of the human performance outliers podcast and today we have a very exciting guest and um, one I've been really uh, getting amped about having on here uh, Jeff aka Bronco Billy Browning is on the show for this day how's it going Jeff
1: good great to ha- great great to be on Zach
2: hey Jeff are you up in? are you uh, It says you're here from Bend Oregon is that where you're at right no, now
1: no I relocated to Logan Utah about Seven or eight months ago, so we lived in Bend for 17 years, and we just
2: moved to Utah in September of 2017 because isn't Bend kind of a pretty historic place for running I think is there some kind of I think for some reason I think Bend Oregon had a lot of runners yeah, from it. I'm yeah, it's a
1: pretty popular endurance sports uh, town, you know, we have one of the longest uh, Nordic seasons in the lower 48 and so a lot of uh, Olympic and really elite nordic uh skiers uh reside in bins we have a really good uh it's good backcountry skiing area and also good runners as well you know um, mario mendoza and max king and ian sharman live there so you know we, we have a um stephanie stephanie how violet like very, very big um Contingent of runners there, so there was always somebody to train with there. Um, I do miss that a little bit, but I moved to bigger mountains and uh, more vert more for mountain running and ultra training and uh, quiet, quieter mountain town that um, bend had become kind of crazy,
2: yeah. Because Oregon in general, I remember because there was that guy Steve Prunt, Prefontaine from years back, you know, the guy died tragically, and then I think Nike had their headquarters originated out of there and stuff like that. So, Oregon's been a a kind of a running state if i'm not mistaken
1: it has it, it is uh yeah eugene's track town usa so that's where free used to race and train and so there is a, a, a deep history of running um especially track especially track and cross country um but but a very deep tradition of running in oregon and and that's kind of where i found ultra running and I, I had moved there in 2000 and
2: got into ultras in oh one Hey, where does, the, where does the nickname Bronco Billy come from? Remember, that's like a Clint Eastwood thing. Not, for <laughs> my i had not
1: real I have a really good buddy who um, I used to train with back in 2002, 2003. Um, He's kind of one of my early ultra mentors, and uh, um, we used to joke around. Uh, I used to yell "Giddy up!" a lot. I had a buddy that used to, I used to climb with in Denver who yelled that all the time when you were trying to throw for a hard problem, and. Um, and I used to yell, I got in the habit of using it all the time, and I'd grown up on a farm in Missouri, and um, he he kind of gave me a lot of trouble because I yelled "Yeehaw" a lot and giddy-up, and he, he started calling me Bronco Billy one summer when we were training together <laughs> a lot. And uh, he was from Norse descent and uh, claimed to be from the Berserker tribe, so I used to call him Berserker. And uh, I used to say things like, get your battle axe, Berserker! And... Uh, <laughs> And so that's kind of how it's, and I, you know, I, I started a blog in '04, and more to just give race reports for my family and, um, back when blogs were nothing and no one had really heard of them. And I, uh, you know, I, I got Bronco Billy wasn't available. Well, Jeff Browning wasn't available. Bronco Billy wasn't available. And I came from a graphic design and marketing background. So I grabbed an action word, go Bronco Billy and started using that. And then everyone started just calling me that like friends started calling me Bronco and a lot of running friends from around the U.S. because the ultra running community isn't that big, especially back then in the early days. Um, in the early 2000s, it was such a small cult sport that you saw the same people all the time as you traveled
2: and just kind of stuck. So you, I guess, you and Zach are competitors, right? I mean, you guys you guys are running in the same events, same circles and stuff like that. Is that. That's correct, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, we do, but, you know, I think we're running against each other in Western States, but... We, our, our paths don't cross that much, you know, Zach really has, over the years, has is, is really concentrated on flat, fast stuff, and especially the track stuff, where he really excels, and um, and I've really concentrated on really big, vert, mountain stuff, you know, that's all, I've always been really attracted to wild, hard courses, and um, um, so I've always, and I'm a hundred mile runner, so that's my, my best distance, so I've always focused on hundreds, and um, yeah,
0: yeah, I was trying to think of that. I I. I. don't think we've actually raced. Um, I know you were at Ice Age one year when I was, but I think you might have done the 50k and I was in the 50 mile.
1: Um, oh, I've only been there once and did the 50 miler and you were not there. Oh, later. okay. So I must have that wrong then.
0: Um, but yeah, so I guess uh, Western States will be the first time we, we towed a line trying to trying to beat each other. But
1: uh <laughs> Yeah, it'll, exactly. It'll be Better bring your A game, Zach. <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> what I was gonna
2: say. I'm wondering if, you, if we ask you some of your training secrets, if you're gonna give us a real deal or not. Because yeah,
1: <laughs> uh, I'll give my. I don't mind giving my training secrets. Western States is hard, man. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Well,
0: speaking of Western States, too, I think one of the compelling uh, stories to talk about today would be like your your history with that with that event, and um, I think it's a very interesting one because it uh, you are kind of more or less. Late to the game to do that one, but you've done it the last two years and done quite well with uh, a third place finish in 2016 and a, a fourth place finish last year. Which, um when you're looking at uh, pretty much unarguably the most competitive 100 miler in North America, um, and probably either second or first in the world, depending on how the UTMB field plays out, you know, that's a pretty astonishing accomplishment.
1: Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, I have a long history of that race. It was my first 100 in 2002. Um, and I never, I couldn't get back into it for years and years. Thanks to ultra Footwear Got me back, got me back in, oh, okay. in in 2016, I, I still couldn't, I tried to race in, but you know, as you know, Zach, I mean, ultra distances are very unique and the hundred miler is a very unique distance compared to say a 50 miler or a hundred K even, and, and someone who's really good at a hundred miler can be okay at a 50 miler or a hundred K, but, but but it's really hard, you know, for with a lot of these younger fast guys coming up in the last five or six years, um, we, you know, for me to go race a 50 mile or 100K, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky if I'm in the top seven, or sometimes, you know, I might be, I might be in the top three, but, but, you know, for me, it was really hard to race in, in, in a, in a 50 or 50 mile or 100K race, you know, in the golden ticket races, and I tried maybe three or four times and just couldn't. You know, I was like, you know, fourth and sixth and stuff like that in those races. And, uh, but you know, you let me get, I just knew I needed to get to the start line. If I could get on the start line, I could stay in the top 10. and um, cause that's my distance. Right. And then for
0: listeners who don't know, if you finish in the top 10 at Western States, you get an automatic <laughs> invite the next year. So you don't have to race your way in or try to get in through the lottery and, you know, it's, it's a fascinating event in that, like, the lottery is almost equally as hard to get in through, where your first go-around, if you just apply, like, for the first time, you have, like, less than a 3% chance of getting accepted. Um, <laughs> and part of that's just because of the, the, the um, regulations on the trails of how many people, like, the permits, how many people have out there. They have to keep the field under 400, and, you know, thousands of people apply. So it makes it kind of a tough one to get into for anybody. And then, you know, it, it is interesting because, like all the golden ticket races now are 100K and then 150 miler, I believe. So it really does make it a lot harder for the 100 mile specialists to race their way in. Um, but then like guys like you and Ian Sharman have shown like once you get in, it's like, if you guys have a have a decent day, you're probably gonna crack the top 10. And then if you really nail one, you might get on the podium like you did in
1: 2016. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, it, it's, it, it's definitely, um, I, I like that they have the golden ticket races. I do wish they had a couple of hundred mile golden ticket races just to let those guys who, you know, older guys, especially people like me and Carl Meltzer for us to be able to like, you know, race in, we need a hundred miler. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Do you mind sharing with the listeners how old you are, Jeff? No, 46, almost 47. So folks,
0: that's one of the reasons I asked him that is because one thing I said on a previous episode is that, um, When we're look when I'm looking at kind of like a high fat diet versus a high carbohydrate diet the thing that just kind of keeps coming back and coming back is these people like, uh, you know, Dr. Sean Baker here and then Jeff Browning as well where they almost seemingly are able to reverse age when they kind of bring in that type of a nutritional protocol, Um, you know, and and Jeff was 45 and 46 when he first finished third and fourth at Western States and, and that wasn't even the end of it and 2016 when you finished third at Western States you also doubled down and went to probably the most difficult hundred miler in the u.s. in terms of just technicality steepness potential weather and finished third there as well and that was what three weeks after
1: Uh, I yeah I came back and actually I finished fourth at West or at Hard Rock so I came back 19 days later and ran Hard Rock 100 Um, didn't quite get on the podium was chasing some uh was chasing Xavier um from France in third all night never could ke- reel him in um i think i got within maybe 30 or 35 minutes of him in the middle of the night and then he did a surge at the end and, and i think we were about an, close to about an hour apart at the end but that's that's so hard rock everybody spread out mm-hmm. it's such a hard course it, it isn't like western states where you turn around and like you know if you tie your shoe three guys past you right um but, but at Hard Rock, you know, a lot of times you're hour or even three hours apart, so one, once it, it kind of settles in later in the race, second half of the race. But, but yeah, it's a hard race, you know. The Hard, hard Rock's you know, average elevation 11,100 feet. I think you go over 13,000 feet seven times, um, climb a 14-er during the race. And uh, um, and I have to say, you know, um, i got to take the time to give you a shout-out, Zach, because you, you were really um, instrumental in and getting me, helping me get fat adapted at the beginning, and move to this diet, and kind of, you know, bypass a few, like, road bumps that, that come with, with the learning curve of this, especially with regards to endurance training, and, uh, um, because you're the first person I reached out to, because we had talked, I think, to give everybody, listeners a little background, I, I'd been a high, high high-carb athlete for 15 years, racing, and training, and running ultras, and, I've been running ultras since 2001, and um, I had 2200s as a high-carb athlete under my belt, and probably close to 100, 100 ultras, and uh, probably or at the time, maybe 890 ultras. Um, and back in the end of 2015, I was having some health issues, and two years before that at Outdoor Retailer, Zach and I had kind of connected, and um, we had chatted about diet, and I don't even know if he remembers that, but... Um, We had done some chatting about diet, and I had thought about going like kind of a paleo diet. And my wife and I had, and my wife has a little, maybe a little bit of what I'd call insulin resistance or uh, um, hypoglycemia a little bit. We found over the years that, you know, days where she'd double down on on simple carbs, she'd get like a migraine and stuff like that. So over the years, as we kind of evolved from like a vegetarian diet to a whole foods diet with clean meats and grass fed wild mimic meats. and But we're still doing a bunch of grains, uh, more of a nourishing traditions, if anybody's familiar with that diet, nourishing traditions type of diet. That's what I was doing when I met Zach, and uh, maybe maybe back in, like, probably, I'd say that'd be back, 2013, when we talked. Zach, mm-hmm. I don't know. You hadn't been doing it that long at the time. I can't remember. I can't remember when you shifted. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of dove in at the end of
0: 2011. So then in 2013, when you I— You would have been, like, two years in, probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of got some momentum, I think, when when I did Desert Solstice in 2013 because then it was like that was probably the first race that really like um, put me on the radar more or less in, in North America as an ultra runner. And, and then people always want to know like, well, what were you doing? And then when I said I follow a high fat approach, that was pretty, you know, it's a little more, I think it, people, people don't necessarily turn their head twice as quickly anymore, but the, back then they certainly did. Right. Yeah, then that,
1: it was just you and you and Timmy. I think were the only mm-hmm. ones that were kind of toying around with, and uh, Mike Morton. Yeah, were kind of toying around with that diet at the time, and uh, with regards to endurance training, and um, it, it, there wasn't that much talk about it then. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No. Hey, 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 Jeff. I just just a couple comments. I was listening. You know, I was reading about the difference between like a marathon runner physiology and an ultra ultra guy's physiology, and you know, we see that the you know the marathon runners tend to, you know, they run a little bit higher heart rate throughout the race, and you guys are a little slightly lower heart rate, which makes sense because you're going for so much longer. Uh, and then one thing they, they they pointed out is many of the ultra guys are over 40, and it's kind of like, you know, you see a bigger spread of guys that are competing over 40. Did you find that, uh, uh, you know, because you said you did lots and lots of 100-mile races as, you, as you've gone on, have you found that you're actually even hitting your, your best numbers now after the age of 40 and then coupling in this, this sort of new uh, higher-fat approach to your diet?
1: Yeah, I think, well, that, that that was kind of my point I was getting at, and I was kind of getting at it as beyond, around, beating around the bush there, because I was, we went back to the history of how Zach and I met, but, you know, like, I um, I, I feel like there's a couple of things that, at play here. One is experience, and, and you can't ever discount time, training, and consistency, right? All the years of ultra training, you know, I've been doing, a, this is my eight, 18th season of training and racing ultras, and uh so there is that factor. Right. Um, and but I would say that my performance, my performance has definitely been best in its, in my 40s. But but also it went up a notch when I changed shifted my diet. I, I feel like that was a pretty big performance enhancer for me. Um, you know, I, I lost eight pounds as an elite athlete when you're <laughs> when you can lose eight pounds, your strength to weight ratio and your VO2 max both go way up. Um, from that point so you know at least you get a you get a bump in numbers just by by that Just by losing weight and when and before on a high carb approach I just could not I had trouble getting down to race weight the older I got it was easier when I was younger in my 30s And but when I got into my 40s, I found that like you know, there's that old saying that your you know your met Your metabolism slows down after 35 and I really I really felt that in my early 40s and uh I really felt that, like you know, recovery wasn't quite as good, and and I was really in, had a lot of inflammation after after racing hundreds and big training blocks. And my wife, you know, I, I, my wife says uh, I mentioned to her. I don't even remember saying this, but she, I told her I'm like I think I think I'm about done racing. You know, um, a few years ago, you know, maybe like 2014, 2015. I'm like I don't know how many more years I can do you do this because at the time I was doing like four hundreds a year and. Um, and and i just was beat up after races and cloudy in my mind and and really inflamed in my knees and my ankles and um you know and and i had and then i you know after a race in south america i came back and had like a kind of like some health issues i had a candida overgrowth in my gi tract and i had some really bad rashes break out and like all kinds of stuff and i was just in, like really i had like seven outbreaks in 2015 and that's when I got desperate. This is the seventh outbreak. I started uh, doing a bunch of. I spent a, a week just online every night, eight to midnight every night. You know, probably twenty twenty five hours worth of research in one week. And I knew enough about diet. You know, I'd studied so much diet over the years. My wife and I, as we'd kind of tinkered and 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 evolved our our eating lifestyle, we really just. Uh, I, I came across you know, hey, yeast feeds on sugar, and you're going to have to. You know, I was looking at it with, in diet forums, and I, I came across a bunch of paleo primal blueprint type um, and, and high-fat, low-carb forums, and, and it said quit feeding the yeast, you know. And so I, I said, I told my wife, I think I'm going to have to kind of go like a paleo style of eating and really cut out, cut out grains and sugar and everything else. And she goes, well, I got three cookbooks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so she whips out three paleo cookbooks. We shifted that night um and uh, we never looked back and then and, and you know maybe after about a four or five days into it I I I had been digging into to some of this stuff that was come, starting to come out about fat adaptation and the faster study that Zach was a part of and that's when I really started to say wait there's a performance thing here you know I had come across vespapower.com's website and there's a bunch of information on ofm optimized fat metabolism and how it how it kind of plays into the to uh endurance training and how it can help and and that really made sense to me you know I was almost a nutrition major in college but became a designer graphic designer instead and um, so I'd always been had this hobby on the side of like being really into nutrition and reading and like kind of consuming a lot of content so I had a lot of knowledge but but that was that, that really. When I started digging into that, I was like, "Wow, I never read any of that stuff." And I it just really made sense. It made sense from our seasonal eating patterns as a you know our background as hunter gatherers and hunter herders, and and that and in being growing up on a farm and seeing a commercial farm and understanding you know <laughs> how dirty it is um, and and how bad it is for the environment. Um, I just it all made sense to me. It just it just added up and. Then once I started doing it, I called Zach and I just said, How do I do this with running? And he kind of gave me some tips and I just kind of you know, I think I had seven weeks from when, when I shifted, I had seven weeks till I had a hundred miler. I was in the middle of training for winter hundred in Hawaii and um hurt one hundred and 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 that seven weeks I went on a crash course, keto, and then I kind of shifted to use strategic carbohydrates around, you know, effort and volume. And it just all the pop came back and um and I went to that race and nailed it in 2000, 2000 that was the beginning of two thousand sixteen and I had a huge year in two thousand sixteen i mean um you know i i just it it was you know third of western states and the double record before the hard rock one hurt one got a course record and one a hundred k and kansas um um kind of my home turf near where I grew up and um and then I think I had another win at the end of the year in a 50K. And I just that was just a great year. And it was really that one of those years where I was just like, whoa, like it was kind of one of those big aha moments in life when you go, you know what, there's something to this and it works and I feel great. And my inflammatory response is like incredibly low. And that's the biggest thing I think as a master's athlete, especially post like late 40s athlete. Um, that's that's a big one. Is is recovery, and and as you know, everyone always talks. Oh, you know, masters runners need to you know do more cross training because you know they just can't handle the volume anymore because of
2: you know recovery.
1: But I felt like I was ten years younger just by shifting my diet.
2: That's that's a that's a similar thing that I've noticed, and that's the same thing I noticed. You know, I think it's not so much uh, overtraining; it's under recovering. And I find that my recovery on a high fat or in my case, you know, a high fat carnivorous diet has been outstanding. and I, I've, I've noticed the very same things. I think, you know, you the more you can train without being beat up and inflamed and sore and stiff, the better your performance is going to be Ultimately, I think it's a, you know, you have to look at the whole picture. I know Tim Noakes is big about this. You know, we do all these studies and they look at just one variable, you know, around these, these you know, these little short three-week cycling studies where they test ketogenic athletes. But as you guys know and I know, doing this day in and day out, month after month after month, when your recovery is better, when you're not beat up, when you're not taking all those hits, your training is just better over a period of time. And in the long run, that adds up to improved employee, uh, improved performance in in my view.
1: Well, I think that's, I I think that's a really good point. And one thing that these studies are so short that I think one thing that um, Dr. Volick has really pointed out is like, Hey, if you're going to do this, like it really takes eight to 12 weeks for you to, of of restricting carbohydrates to really start to see, to get efficient and really see it. And I, I felt like, the longer, I mean, I've been doing it two and a half years now, and racing and training hard, and and I, I don't, I feel like I've gotten more and more efficient even after a year on it. Yeah, you know, so I think the longer you you stay consistent, the more, the more benefit you get from this.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's one thing that I, I try to share with people too is like I notice some immediate. Uh, advantages like you did, just like kind of leaning out a little bit and, uh, sleeping through the night, getting rid of some of that, like swelling in the ankles and the legs and things like that. Those were like things that kind of cleared up within the first couple of weeks, but then it was like year and a half, two years in before I like, I remember hitting a training block at the end of 2000 or probably midway to back two thirds of 2013, which would have been just shy of two years since I kind of started and thinking like, wow, this is like a whole nother. A whole nother level and uh so yeah a lot of times i think people they don't give it enough time to kind of take in t- to set in and i also think the longer you do it too you can kind of you, you, you almost reset your system to the point where you you can get away with more carbohydrates without bumping you out of ketosis like I did a, I've been kind of playing around with this a little bit. I usually don't check that stuff because I don't really don't care if I'm in ketosis or not. I more or less like want to know if I'm fat adapted enough to go for a really long run without needing to fuel. Um, but I get asked enough that I started kind of checking the last couple of weeks and, you know, I had a day that I was convinced would put me out of ketosis and would maybe take me another day to get back in where I had like, I think it totaled like four cups of uh, cantaloupe, two cups of blueberries tablespoon of raw honey and uh, medium to large sweet potato, and then the next morning I was back in ketosis. So like I mean I think you can yeah I I on. agree
1: I've had the same experience I I I use a breath a breathalyzer to check, and uh, so I, I I'm having the same thing. I can take in hard training blocks I can take my carbs pretty high you know 100, 100 to two hundred grams a day um, depending on the volume block and. Uh, I barely get. If I get knocked out, I only get knocked out to like a low carb zone, Mm -hmm. meaning I'm still producing ketones. I'm just not officially in nutritional ketosis. But I'm, I'll be back in within less than 24 hours. Um, it just barely kicks me out, especially on the days when I do simple carbs on a long run. If I'm doing like a four and a half, five hour run, and you know, I maybe I'm sipping 100 calories an hour or something from like a powdered carbohydrate drink. You know, I use Goo Roctane, and um, if I'm super sipping some Roctane, I, like, I might – it'll knock me out a little. But I've even found there's sometimes that doesn't even knock me out.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I tested again, like, that next day. I did a really big workout after, you know, checking the – the reason I had brought those carbs back in the first place because I had a big workout scheduled. And I got back from that, that run, and I even had – I think another sweet potato after that workout and within a couple hours, I actually, I do you use the ketonics meter.
1: Uh, I use one called the keto meter, okay. which is, it's just a, you know, it's a little less expensive version of it that, uh, actually one of my athletes I coach, uh, makes them. Oh,
2: cool.
1: Um, yeah. Keto meter. Biz. I'll give him a little plug. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Check <laughs> that out folks. Um,
2: Yeah. Um, anyway, hey, hey, let, let me ask a quick question for both of you guys because you know, on these ultra races, you know, they're usually you know, they're like one a marathon, they have check stations, you know, every mile or two that they're loaded up with people, they're stocked up with stuff. How does it work in an ultra? Do you have to carry your own fuel with you, and how do you fuel during those, those 100 mile races? Because obviously, I assume most of you guys are doing some sort of either electrolyte replacement or you know, some kind of nutrition replacement. So do you carry it with you or, or how does that, how do do you, what's the strategy for that stuff?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely, um, every race is a little different because it depends on the course, like these mountain courses are, it's wherever they can get, uh, you know, uh, a truck or uh, some kind of vehicle into the backcountry usually, or sometimes they have to pack stuff in with horses. It just depends. Some are backpacked in if they're really backcountry in some races. um, So they will be more minimal, but uh, you know, bare minimum, most of these A stations are, you know, usually five to ten miles apart, um, depending on the course and, and how wild it is. Um, they definitely, you know, bare minimum, they're going to have a little bit of food and some water in these. Like, if someone had to backpack in, but if uh, most of them are going to have, you know, pr- quite a smorgasbord of of food. You know, everything from candy and sweets and cookies to chips and potatoes and fruit. Um, water, and usually some kind of electrolyte replacement drink option, whoever's a sponsor of that race um, type of deal. Uh, and then we carry our own thing. So usually you're carrying about twenty to you know twenty to sixty ounces of water depending on the course and how hard it is and how long it is between stations. Um, and then you're carrying a little bit of food. So usually, you know, simple stuff like carbohydrate drink or gels or something like that in between the aid stations and a little bit of solid foods at the aid station.
2: Do you have a specific strategy? Like, you know, like plan ahead. I'm going to eat here. and I'm going to eat this much. Or is it just kind of you kind of go is how you're feeling?
1: I'm, I'm very uh, simple and stick to my own plan. Most of what I take in is my own calories. Um, I don't really use much of the aid stations for a little fruit. Um, and maybe a little broth if it's a 100 miler at night, um, if they have some salty broth of some sort. Um, but most of the time for me, it's uh, I'm I'm IV dripping goo roctane. Um, it's like powdered uh, carbohydrate drink in between aid stations, about 100 calories between every aid station. Uh, so that comes out to about 100 calories an hour from that. And then uh, um, I eat a little bit of solid food at the top of every hour. So... I carry some salted plantain chips in a Ziploc bag. I'll have a few chips at the top of every hour, or if an aid station shows up around that time, I'll have fruit instead. Um, you know, not very much. I I don't eat very much. I probably I probably put down about 100, 150 to 200 calories an hour during a 100. Yeah, and just to kind
0: of fill people in, too, who aren't, like, you know, 100-mile runners or, or aren't into ultra-marathons that, like, one of the biggest variables that becomes more pronounced in a hundred mile race or anything over that, or when you're going to be out there for like 12, 14, 16, 20 plus hours is this, um, you know, ability to kind of continue to eat. And, um, I think, uh, you know, Jeff would agree with me where like, when you're looking at that variable, the more you can minimize it, the better, like the less you have to rely on food, the better, like you have, uh, this like, I guess a gas tank of uh, body fat and even the leanest athletes out there um, have enough there to get them through a long, a long race. So if you can tap into that and avoid having to like try to hit maybe 400 calories an hour, which I think is fairly typical for some, for some of these, you know, top runners, it's like, it's a game changer when you can lower that to those levels that Jeff just described. It becomes a lot less of a tedious variable. And then on races like Western states where you might see 100 to even 110 degrees in the canyon sections, you when know, you're going up and down hills over switchbacks and it gets that hot, like, that just makes it even that much harder to digest anything. So like
1: yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, Zach, because that's, that's a big one in Western states especially. This diet, you know, and being being able to tap in your own fat at a, pretty, at a high level, um, really, really is a game changer when it comes to GI stress. And I think that's the biggest, one of the bigger benefits besides the recovery. That's one of the bigger benefits I feel like, because you're burning your own fat stores, you don't have to worry about taking as many calories per hour. One that makes it more really convenient because you don't have to carry as much. Um, second is is you really just don't have the GI stress because I mean, as a high high carb athlete like I mentioned earlier, for 15 years I was I was down in three to 500 calories an hour. Um, and I always had a little garbage gut at mile eight, 75 or 80 um, mm-hmm. of a hundred miler, uh, a little GI stress, you know, like where are just kind of sitting in your gut, gut like a rock. I, I mean, I always considered myself to have an iron gut, but because I never really, only a handful of times that I throw up in lot in t- 2200s, you know, I've done 30 now, but you know, the last seven uh, or eight, I guess, um, on on a, kind of the high fat approach, but. Um, I definitely don't have any GI stress during. Uh, the only time I've had GI stress, I have to say, you know, during this high-fat approach, um, is when I've gone to an aid station late in the race and broken a rule of keeping it simple and eating a bunch of food. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's just like, oh, that because you feel so good and your stomach's not upset, and you come into a, you know, like I can like uh, Hard Rock in 2016. I had a little GI stress after mile. Seventy-five. I came into Sherman and they had bacon, and and there was a lot of bacon, and I ate a lot of bacon. Um, I probably ate like four pieces, and in a hundred, as you know, you know, four pieces a lot. That's a lot of complex fat and protein to throw at your gut, Mm -hmm. and uh, and so like you know, I I didn't throw up or anything, but I just my stomach was a little off after that, and I was like, that was like a good learning experience. It was like you know, I'd done so well on the on the on it in two thousand sixteen up until that point that I, I just kind of broke a rule and said, hey, I am ch- I just chowed down some bacon and and then you're pushing really hard at altitude and then all of a sudden, you know, it's like you go up to 12,000, and I was above 11,000 feet from that point forward and it was just like, oh, it, it just didn't digest. Yeah, um,
0: you know, then that brings well. up another question I was going to ask you about too, Jeff, was, uh
1: um, you know, when
0: you kind of like, dive into the world of keto and keto athletes, uh, you know, a lot of times I think people assume that, you know, guys like you and and myself are eating, eating fat during the race. And, you know, it's, it it would make sense when you look at kind of our macronutrient breakdown from our our day to day lives. Uh, But what I've always told people is like, you know, eating, eating fat during a race seems at least somewhat counterintuitive, unless it's a really long race, like maybe 24 hours or further, because like, you're essentially, you're getting fat calories, sure, but you're making your body digest them as opposed to bypassing the digestive tract altogether. And then, you know, if you're going to do fueling, which I, you know, I think pretty much everyone does to some degree, you know, us obviously a lot less, but, uh, you know, you are going to refuel that, that gas tank, that's going to deplete
1: a lot more readily, like the glycogen stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, okay. So I, I that, I run into this a lot coaching athletes because I coach a you know, a bunch of my coached athletes are are kind of doing OFM, and and so they're eating they're they're eating their everyday lifestyle this high fat approach um, to get this optimized fat metabolism going and and really burn onboard fat. And I think that's where there's some I don't know misinformation in the ultra running community at least endurance community is that you know hey we 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 stay keto all the time. Right? You know I hear a lot of people say are you a keto athlete a keto athlete keto 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 um, and I would say no. I use keto as a tool. I use it to adapt, and then I use it occasionally for maybe seven to fourteen days to reset every once in a while. Um, or if I need to drop a couple pounds, um, I might go back to a you know pretty low carb approach, like where where I'm at fifty grams. But I, most of the time, I'm eating kind of more of a Paleo Primal Blueprint style eating, where I'm at a you know seventy five to one hundred and fifty grams of carbs a day when I'm training. I might go keto on a day when I'm taking a rest day, when I take my carbs lower. So I'm, I'm mirroring that, with, that intake with volume and effort. And also, um, you don't eat fat during the race. So I, I stick to simple carbohydrates, stuff that breaks down really easily in the gut. Um, because here's the thing, and this is, I think, where the misinformation is. You're not burning exogenous fat, right? Fat you're intaking because that's a, like you said it's a very complex process for the body to break that fat down and protein too but it it's you know it's quicker at, burn, at breaking down glucose and breaking down carbohydrate and that's why we use carbohydrate we we really the reason we're doing this in our everyday life is to tap into our fat stores and that's the key and why this is so such a good a good approach for endurance sports especially for long races like ultramarathons is because that fuel source is so much more efficient. And, and to give reader or the listeners, I mean, uh, a little bit of like a quick understanding of why is when you, on average, when, for every unit of oxygen you consume, if you're burning glucose as your primary fuel. Um, so for all those high carb athletes out there, your primary fuel source is glucose. If you're burning glucose, you're, for every unit of oxygen you consume, you're kicking out an equal unit of CO two. Okay, so it's a one to one ratio. So one, you know, unit of oxygen for a unit of waste, basically, right? Um, but if you're burning onboard fat, we're not talking exogenous fat, and that's where the, the 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 confusion lies, I think, in what we're doing. We're talking about onboard fat. We've adapted, so our metabolic system can start tapping into a high rate of onboard fat per minute for fuel, then that, that uh, uh, one unit of oxygen, on average, to 0.75 CO2. So it's more efficient fuel source, meaning you are kicking out less waste for every unit of oxygen you're consuming if, you're bur- if you can tap into your onboard fat. That's the key to this if you do less oxidative stress. And I think that's what we see over the course of a 100-miler and what I saw between being a 2200s on as a high-carb athlete and then the last eight, you know, as a – I used to have to wear compression after every 100 for, like, three days. I had to sleep in it. I had, like, cankles. You couldn't see my ankle bones. My, You know, I looked like I looked like I rolled my ankle, you know, when your ankle's blo- balloons up. That's what both my ankles looked like after 100-milers, every 100-miler for 2200-milers. And, and then every single hundred since then, I don't wear compression, unless I'm flying. I don't wear compression. I throw on my flip-flops. I walk around, and I'm not swollen. I'm micro swell. I have some micro-swelling the first, you know, 48 hours, but I don't have the, the throbbing big swelling. And I think that's the key here is we do less oxidative stress because we have a very clean fuel source because it's on board. Yeah, I think that's one of the
2: things and, and Zach mentioned that a similar thing happened to him on the races with the swelling. I think Owen Frank's with the New Zealand All Black, he had a similar type story about all the swelling. And one of the things, you know, with oxidative stress, you know, you're doing damage. You know, that's damaging to the to to various metabolic machinery and tissues. And then you get this compensatory inflammation that follows that. And the inflammation is an attempt to try to, you know, take care of that. That's our body's acute response to that. But what you're showing is you're just not taking as much damage. And I think what we're seeing is one of the reasons these guys that, you know, can be, you know, in the older age categories like myself, Jeff, and, and some of the other guys I've talked to, see that, you know, they're able to perform better at, at a longer period of time just because they're not getting beat up as much or not getting damaged as much. And I think that more than anything is is a huge benefit for, you know, that varying nutritional strategy. I think a lot of people were seeing that, you know, many athletes are. You're performing, maybe in a performing actually fairly well. I mean, they're toughening it out, but they're they're taking all this oxidative stress and all this damage, and then it shows up with things like injuries or you know shortened careers, which I think is uh, you know a different way to look at things. Well, another one
1: too. I I experienced after hundred post hundreds on a high carb approach is that I I had really had brain haze for a week after hundreds. Um, you know, with all that. Imp- External inflammation. I had to be getting some kind of inflammation in the brain too, because because I I literally was like I felt like I was like kind of out of it, you know, for a week or so, um, at least four or five days after a hundred, and and I always chalked it up to just these things. Just t- where, you know, you didn't sleep for a night and you missed a night of sleep and you're just tired. But the thing is, is after I switched to a high fat approach, I didn't get that I didn't get that cloudiness anymore.
0: Yeah. I, I remember Jeff, when you, you did the hurt 100, which would have been that like seven or eight week period when you had done the kind of the crash course, like super low carb is to try to fix the Candida. And I remember you messaged me after that and you're like, I couldn't believe it. The next day I was doing air squats. And my legs felt there was obviously you were a little sore from, from the race and stuff, but there wasn't that, you know, that, that swelling that would almost make it impossible to bend your knees and you know, move your joints and stuff around. Well-
1: that's the one thing I noticed, too. you know, that, that was huge. Like I always, everyone always, you know, over the years had always asked like, Oh, what's it like, you know, that right after you get done with a hundred miler, like I said, well, your body kind of seizes up, you're done running and your legs seize up and you can barely walk. You, you have to like, you have to like help yourself into the seat of a car and you can't walk downstairs very well. And, you know, and I said, all oh, that, ha- that lasts for about 12 to 14 hours. And then it kind of loosens up and let, you know, you know it goes into the shock for the first 12 to 14 hours and then it loosens up. I found with this approach that first 12 to 14 hour phase goes away. It doesn't happen. So I just go to right to phase two of the old way. And that's where everything's kind of loose. I can go downstairs, but not, I can't pop down them, but I can sit down into a seat. I can sit on the toilet without putting my arms on the toilet seat to let myself down onto the seat, you know, or whatever. You know, I know that that's, a, that's kind of disgusting, but, but it's, that's kind of what you have to deal with after 100 miler You're so sore and inflamed, um, and I chalk that up as just normal damage because hundreds are long, um, but I realized that afterwards from the shift that, you know, actually that was my, my diet was causing that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's it's always it's always kind of interesting to me because you'll hear, like, almost every, like, kind of counter or excuse uh, after you've been doing it long enough, and I know, like, sometimes I'll even get accused of it being a placebo effect in my mind. And, uh, you know, like, there's there's definitely... I, I agree that the placebo effect can be a very powerful thing, and um, it can influence how things work or how you process things in your mind but like when you have scenarios like what you've described um and then like like i remember like when you asked me before if i had uh remember talking about that at, at or i remember that conversation and i also remember thinking like when i saw a picture of you at hurt like a race picture seeing you like you you obviously were a very fit person before that, but you noticeably got leaner. Like you were completely a whole other level, dude. A whole other level.
1: I had to go buy all new jeans. <laughs> I mean, I, I went down two waist sizes. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're talking like I'm, am trained my training volume. I've been tracking my training volume for two thousands and you know, paper log and now a digital log, you know? Um, but like it, so my training volume over the last, say, five or six years hasn't changed much. Like, it's pretty close to the same. It's – and but you, you look at the pictures before and after. I put together some before and after pictures. It's pretty impressive. Like, I'm totally different looking. Like, my body, my arms, my shoulders, like, my legs, m- my stomach, like, everything. My, my wife was like, oh, my gosh. Like, she always used to, like, joke around how I had a big butt. Um, <laughs> And uh, I always chalked it up to being, like, that was, like, hereditary in my family and, uh, um, and, and that it went from all the years of cycling. But, I mean, as soon as I went on this diet, you know, and changed my lifestyle to getting rid of, you know, grains and sugar, it really – I mean, I, I I don't have a butt anymore. <laughs> yeah, and and, uh, and it, I lost a lot of weight, and it was all mainly my core. It was, like, from the bottom of my chest to the upper half of my quads.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah you know one thing I always uh, kind of think about when when I see like a you know a, a high caliber athlete or just you know, even someone who's competing in the top 10 at like ultra marathons and stuff like that is like you see it a lot where you get these guys in their 20s and 30s and you know they're pretty robust so you can throw a lot at them and they're, they're lean you know visible abs and all that stuff and then if you have someone who was like that, and then they're continuing to try to stay competitive into their 40s and they're still training the same way. But now the difference is they've got this like nice little layer of fat over some of their like, you know, like their, their core section or their their upper legs and things like that. That's a sign that it's a nutritional issue, not like a, a training issue. It's, you know, it's what what you were able to get away with earlier. You're no longer to get away with. And, you know, I think that's at least partly why sometimes we see people gravitate towards this kind of later on because they can no longer really like, you know, make the mistakes they were when they were younger. And they, if they want to stay lean and fed and at that competitive, that competitive spot, then they, you know, they have to start addressing
1: nutrition a lot closer. Absolutely. I see that all the time with my coached athletes. You know, the, I, a lot of the people I coach are late thirties to early fifties. And, um, so, you know, forties is kind of like the average, and and they really, in that in, in that age bracket, 35 to 50, is where we see people who have been doing some kind of athletic endeavor for a long time, where they feel like, I just can't quite get to my race weight anymore. That's what I experienced. I just can't quite get there. I mean, I'd get within a couple pounds, but I just couldn't quite get there. It was really hard. I would have had to, like, starve myself, you know? And with this, it makes it easy, like... You know it. You know after a you know some time off after a hundred or after off season and I put on three. I'm, I, I like this year I put on four pounds. All I did was a 14 day keto reset, dude. Right back down to 138, right back down to race weight at the beginning of the spring, and I've been there ever since.
2: So hey Jeff, hey Jeff, yeah. let me interrupt here. You. Um, you know because you said you didn't change your training any. Um what do you what do you think about the caloric intake during those periods where you're dropping? Are you tracking calories? Is it a significant caloric reduction or is it just the, the type of food that's it's attributing to the to the fat loss, would you think?
1: Um I think it's uh I think it's a, a deeper fat burning because when I when I'm going into those 14 day resets or something or a two-week reset, um I'm just doing I'm going back keto like where I'm going really low carb. So like I'm only having carbs like veggies at lunch and dinner and maybe a handful of berries as a snack before bedtime and that's it so i maybe hit, hit hitting 50 60 grams of carbs a day but i'm training at the same time
2: so are, but are you are you do, are you just dramatically dropping your caloric intake or are you are you do you even calculate that
1: no i don't really calculate that i ha- i did when i first started doing this but I, now i go into it's more intuitive and uh, I, I just make sure i have a lot of – i mean i i cook with fat i have fat in my coffee Uh, you know I I have fat with pretty much every meal and every snack I have some kind of fat so I mean even those handful of berries that's like a what I call a fat parfait and I would I would be a a, a heaping spoonful of coconut oil a spoonful of almond butter mix it together with a little stevia sprinkle some berries on it pour some heavy whipping cream or some coconut milk over the top and eat it as like a parfait so it's not a lot of carbs in it but it's a lot of fat so I, I have a decent amount of calories coming in, but I don't have a ton of carb calories coming in. And I do carb fast pretty much every day. Um, you know, 90, 95% of, the, of my, my week or a, a day that I, all ha- I don't have carbs until after. I, I work out lunch during the week, so I don't have carbs until after lunch. I mean at lunch. I mean after my workout. So like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So most of my carbs are eaten in a 6 to 9 hour window. So that means I'm carb fasting, you know, 14 to 18 hours a day most days, meaning the last carb I had was probably 9 o'clock at night, and the first carb I'm going to have is 2 o'clock in the afternoon um, the next day after a workout. So I'll have fat and protein in the mornings, but I'll only have fat and protein yeah but no car i think i think the interesting thing you
0: said there jeff was that like you know with with the approach you're following you you are in a position where if you eat intuitively your body's going to find where it needs to be based on the activities you're doing so you, you know you're asking a lot of your body and you're asking your body to move long distances so it's going to find that point where that power weight ratio is is uh at the at, a, at an optimal spot for you and you don't have to like think about like you don't really have to think a whole lot about like well i better not have that you know that that extra snack because I need to shed a pound or, you know, you just, you just listen to your body. And if you're hungry, you eat. And if you're not, you don't. And then everything kind of normalizes. Whereas, you know, you see these, these roller coasters that people go on, um, you know, especially, you know, not probably as much elite athletes, but like, you know, just, you know, general people who are trying to get in shape for a race or you know, trying to get healthy. It's like, if they find themselves in this position where they're hungry, but they're like, "I better not eat anything because I still need to lose that last five pounds," and then you can't eat intuitively. So um,
1: right, I think a lot. That's of times... a great thing about this. I don't have, you don't have to think. I mm-hmm. just eat eat to satiety, and um, and there's times when I I definitely eat a serious amount of calories in one setting. You know, like after a long run, like I'll eat multiple uh, multiple servings of fruit throughout the day after that long run and then i find i snack like crazy i'm just i'm just kind of hungry so i just listen Whoa. you know and I, the other thing i found that is if you kind of gravitate more towards like a high high fat protein during those times when you're really craving versus a bunch of fruit um, you'll it'll it'll satiate you faster so like instead of like you'll otherwise you'll just keep wanting to eat you know what i mean so i i found that like going towards really good sources of stuff like a good good ribeye or a T-bone, you know, a good grass-fed, grass-finished T-bone or something like that after a big long run. Um, that with like, you know, a good solid, you know, vegetables cooked in some fat and then uh, uh, maybe a potato or something, or sweet potato uh, smothered in butter, and then you'll be really saturated. But if I eat kind of like a lighter meal after a big effort, I, I'm I'm thinking back to Friday. I did a 20, almost 24 mile run with 6,000 feet of climbing, and I did went on really low calories that day. Like I did it in the late in the afternoon, and I ate a pretty light day of food. So I don't think I'd had very many carbs either. So I went into it pretty carb fasted, um, and I, I went really low on my calories per hour. So like you know maybe 90 or 100 calories per hour during that run. And so when I got home, I was like hungry. And I was like, you know, I'm going to eat and I ate a meal and then I ate another meal and then I snacked like a bunch that night. And I think I went to bed with, you know, my stomach like (laughs) all stuck out because I'd eaten so many calories in like, you know, the five hours after the run until I went to bed. Yeah. And, you know, go ahead. Oh, I was just
0: going to say the one thing I'll notice like to kind of go back to when with the intuitive eating side of things is that like when you can get away with doing that, like. On this approach because like you have access to your fat stores. so if you if you, you're you out and you don't want to be bothered with all the logistics of bringing a bunch of food along and things like that you go for that long that long run you come back and for me it's like if i do something like that i have that same situation you do where but i can trust it so it's like i'll i'll eat like my normal size meal and then like i'll be like oh i'm still hungry i'll keep eating and like it's it's noticeable like your body almost just kind of like almost uh, re-alters its expectations based on the workload you put on it so then once you're kind of where you want to be you can just trust your hunger pangs and you can trust when you're full and when you're hungry and all that stuff it's it's it makes it just a lot less of a
1: hassle i i, I agree and yeah, another, one, thing I, another thing i i i would say on this that i i think one thing that um as endurance athletes especially that we can up our protein sources more like a lot of keto Eating says moderate protein, moderate protein, moderate protein. I do think we can go up, up our protein, especially if we're going for fattier, fattier cuts of wild mimic meats and variety. That, that you can up your ratio if you're going to look at macros. You can up your ratio of protein on this when you're in training blocks because you are breaking down muscle. You need to repair. Um, I do find that you know fatty cuts are. One, you, I don't. I tend not to overeat as much either. Like where you kind of the old school, like I can't quit eating, type of scenario. Um, on the high carb, as a high carb athlete, there'd be times where you just eat and eat and eat, and then you'd have to undo your belt belt buckle. Um, that that's kind of. I don't really get that on this. I'm just kind of satisfied, especially if I go for the good sources of stuff, especially good sources of fatty proteins.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, clearly, I mean, there's there's quite a bit of evidence that shows that endurance and athletes in particular need more more protein than your average person, for sure. And I think as we get older, we need more protein. Uh, you know, aside from the stuff that I do, right, you know, I just eat a bunch of, you know, uh, you know, a carnivorous diet where I get plenty of protein and, pl- and also plenty of fat. I mean, my diet is probably uh, by calorie something like 70% fat, you know, and so I'm still kind of hitting close to those ketogenic Macro ratios, and I think that's important for that let me just kind of change gears a little bit in a question for both You guys a little bit because you talked about the tedium of you know Some of what you do because it is you know you're running for 100 miles is You know there's a lot of stuff going on where you're just kind of doing the same thing How do you dissociate or do you dissociate sometimes you find like I when I ra- I was a cross-country runner in high school Believe it or not. I, I don't think I ran more than about half half a marathon, but um, I just found that there was times where you just kind of get into it, and where your your mind just kind of dissociates itself from your body, and so your mind is kind of off here thinking about something else, and you don't even notice your body. Do you find that you almost it's almost like an out of body, you know, meditative experience as you get into a flow, or, or are you too engaged with the other athletes to have that happen when you're when you're in the races? Well, do you want
1: to answer that first, Zach, or you want me to? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> uh, for me personally. Um you know, I train a lot alone. I have, you know, I have a wife and three kids and, um, a couple businesses. And, um, so, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to hook up with other people. Maybe once a week I get on a group run and that's it. So for me, I like the, I like being in the woods by myself. And so the races, you end up kind of being, even when you're racing around a bunch of people, you don't end up really chatting that much, maybe in the first 30, 40 miles of a hundred, you might chat a little bit, but after that, you're kind of in your own zone. And, and i th- I kind of feel like you find your own you find a flow state where you're just kind of it's meditative more your your mind kind of goes in and out of like you're thinking about everything and and sometimes nothing or sometimes just thinking about you know uh just counting your steps or I don't know for me if I'm racing sometimes that's it's like i'm I'm gonna I'm gonna run for you know nineteen steps and then I'm gonna hike for seven you know and or whatever so like I I think there's a lot of different places your mind goes during a 100 miler and during those long, long, long efforts of, of you know, sometimes 15, 18, 20 hours or more. Um, yeah, it's all over the place, you know, but it's definitely meditative for sure. Yeah. And,
0: you know, one of the reasons I know it's meditative is because when I get asked what I was thinking about during it, I can never remember.
1: <laughs> so it's like, well,
0: yeah, what was I thinking about? And, you know, you know, you're thinking of something during that, you know, you know, full day of running. Um, But yeah, you know, I think kind of like along the lines that Jeff said, I think you kind of go in and out of it a little bit. I think like there's sections where you kind of get in a groove and it's just like everything seems to be humming and you just like, you just ride it. And then there's times where like things get a little more tough mentally and physically and then you try to break things down to be real simple. Like, all right, I'm going to do like, you know, 20 strides and then 10 power hikes and just try to like rather than trying to think about this entire task you're trying to accomplish, try to think of like the most immediate thing to try to take your mind off. Um, you know, some of the stuff coming up ahead that will potentially
2: kind of put you into a frenzy. Yeah, definitely ebbs and flows. What do you guys do? Uh, Jeff, what do you do like just for motivation? I mean, there's, cause obviously there's gotta be a, some kind of psychological thing going on. that gets you up every day out of, you know, out on the, you know, out on the trails or out on the track or whatever, wherever you're doing your training. I mean, is there something that you do mentally to, to say, I'm going to, you know, how do I prepare for the Western States or whatever big event going on? Is there, do you have like, and I talked to Zach and I talked about, Owen lot about this. And do you have a, do you have, do you create some sort of, uh, you know, I almost call it an enemy, but do you have like a person uh, you focus on? I'm going to beat that person or is it or is it just internal? I'm going to beat myself. You know, what, what is the psychology that, that, you know, for me, I know I like to I like to externalize stuff. I always I always paint the other guy as a bad guy, and there's no way he can beat me, and I'm just gonna push myself faster, harder than that guy. Or is it just I'm gonna see how far I can go, and, and and that's where it stays.
1: Well, I I definitely get competitive during a race, but in training, for me, I'm I'm most of the time, uh, uh you know, I'm I'm a very intuitive trainer. Meaning, I've been doing it so long that I pretty much know what I got to do to get ready for something. I know I need to do speed work and I know I need to do, I need to keep on my strength training and my mobility. And I know I need to get in an X amount of miles about ballpark and X amount of so much climbing per week um, and hit kind of those general numbers. I know I need to be in the ballpark, but I don't sweat it if I don't hit it exactly. You know, I've learned over the years, especially, you know, after almost two decades of racing and training. Uh, for these dang things that that it really does at the end of the day like experience and and consistency matters and so you know I I, I've also learned from experience that sometimes you show up and you can't do that last sharpening bit at the end of the you know last three weeks because you know you got a calf that's acting up and so you know you gotta you gotta just kind of trust in your own experience that you're just gonna show up on race day and like perform and and I, th- I think those are the kinds of things that only come with experience. So I do have an alter ego. I mean, Bronco Billy, Bronco definitely an alter ego in a race. Um, I, I definitely push him down the first half and he comes out the second half. Um, I, I definitely visualize and, um, you know, let let him kind of take over. Uh, he, he likes, well, I, I, I like to say he likes to slay young dragons. Um, <laughs> And uh, uh, you know, we take out a sword and slice as we pass, because um, I typically come from behind in hundreds, um, especially when it's there's a deep field. Um, you know, you know, for example, in Western States last year, I think at mile sixty-two, I was in seventeenth and I finished in fourth. So, you know, I like to pass. I don't like to get passed. So, I definitely take my time in the first half. I definitely race patiently in the first fifty. Um and um, sometimes that can hurt you, you know, if you don't take more risks early. Um, but it it also can play into being safe, um, too, in knowing that you're going to have a lot in the tank at the end. Um, so yeah,
0: yeah. It always seems like to me when you get a race that's as, as competitive as Western states, um, or, or like from my experience, I've always seen this at like World Hundred Ks, is that If you want, if you kind of got to go on with a goal of like, I'm putting, I'm going to try to win this thing. And in that case, you kind of have to roll the dice a little bit at the beginning. Um, But if you're like, all right, I'm just going to kind of run my race and, you know, like be strong at the end. You can probably podium if you have a really good day doing that. But it's going to be hard to win because usually if you get like, say, 10 guys all like run a little bit out of their comfort zone sure eight or nine of them blow up epically but then one of them has the race of their life and that person's hard to catch that day um totally so like and then it then it comes down as kind of kind of being realistic about where you think you can get to and um and then plan accordingly And i mean that strategy's worked really well for you the last two years at western states like you know just just imagining coming through forest hill in 17th place and then arriving in auburn in fourth is that's motivating when the mental side of the sport starts to really kick in and get difficult, you know when you're passing people like Jeff no doubtingly was that last forty miles um that's what kind of gives you that little extra boost to kind of keep pushing when it's starting to get hard,
1: yeah, and it's it, yeah, and you never know, yeah, I mean there definitely was last year was questioning like you know what the heck man, like I'm in seventeenth like this <laughs> you know the year i think the year before I was in maybe eighth coming out of forest Hill. So at 62. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, that's, that's, you know, you're salt. you're in the top 10. I felt good at that point. And I was like, sweet. And in, in 17th, it was like, man, what the heck's going on today? No one's blowing up, you know? Um, you know, or did I just go too slow? Like, what the heck? I don't feel like I went too slow. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, everybody, you know, starts coming back to you. And, um, you know, I think I moved into top 10 by, 78 you know and so right at the river and then i just started catching more guys on the way in so it's like it it just really it's every race is so different and how you have to race it because sometimes there's only two guys that are fast in it you know two other guys or one other guy it only takes one guy to make it a race Mm -hmm. but but you know it just depends on every race is totally different and how you approach those and in the in the conditions you have to deal with too i mean we're talking wild mountain races sometimes so Sometimes we have extreme heat, sometimes we have rain, sometimes we have, you know, thunderstorms and lightning and at, at altitude, you know, or river crossings, you know, wildlife encounters. You know, I definitely have had my fair share of wildlife encounters over the last just because I don't use a pacer in a hundred. So I've definitely you know had some close encounters with wildlife at night.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you know, like you said with the with the weather variable too, like the caveat to what I said is if you get a year where it gets up to like 115 in the canyons, that's a year where like that strategy you put in place, that's when you could potentially win. And I think we, we do see that from time to time. I think probably the year Andrew Miller won was that, that was 2016. Um, you know, I think he probably was around a really smart race and then didn't, didn't have any uh, di- or didn't have any like big hiccups. And that just resulted in him kind of outlasting a bunch of guys who
1: maybe pushed a little too hard. Yeah. He nailed that race. And and if you look at like, you know, last year, um, uh, what's his name from South Africa? Oh, Ryan Sands. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ryan Sands. He ran super smart. Like he was, he tried to go with Jim for a little bit, you know what I mean? Like kind of chase him, but realized like, man, it's hot today mm-hmm. and he's got enough experience and, and, uh, he's a veteran hundred mile runner. And he just said, you know what? That's not smart. And he laid back and he won. Yeah, you know.
0: Well, and the interesting looking at him like like that shows his his race intelligence too because you know he's finished second at Western States in the past with like a low fifteen hour, like like fifteen oh six, and then last year he right. wins with what was it sixteen twenty two. So you know he knew that like the course is harder this year, the weather might be worse than the last time. You know, play play the course rather than a metric, and then uh, you know it worked out well for him.
2: Yeah, totally. <laughs> hey, I'm gonna put you guys on the spot. I want you guys give me a thirty minute window of your time in Western States. <laughs> <laughs> what do you What do you think, Jeff? Where, what are you What you targeting? You know, assuming the weather's good, I, you know, well, if it rains and there's and there's wild deer running it's around chasing, that's going to change it. But
1: it, normal the weather. weather's hot, so um, you know, I've been sixteen thirty there and seventeen. I think I was seventeen something last year, seventeen thirty. I think it was an hour slower because it was such a hot year and with all that snow in the high country. Um, we don't have snow in the high country. I mean, I definitely like to better my time from from 2016, 16, sub 16:30 for sure. You know, I mean, I I'd love to get under 16 hours on that course, but um, I'd have to have like kind of one of those days, and and the weather would have to cooperate a little bit too. Couldn't get crazy hot, but you typically get just used to. You you got to be ready. You you got to expect crazy heat in that race. Mm-hmm.
2: Zach, what are you targeting,
1: man? Yeah. So
2: kind of like I think you said something like 14, 20, something yeah, like was that, what I said? right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. What what are you, what are you gonna what are you gonna come out with? Yeah, and then, well then
0: if, it, if it's um you know this is I'm the, one of the reasons I'm really excited about this race is kind of like what Jeff was saying earlier. I've traditionally targeted more flatter races, and as far as mountain races go, Western states isn't necessarily like a a super mountain or anything like that, but it's definitely got its 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 ups and downs. Um, so I'm going to be curious, like, this is the first time in my life. I've really had a, a real structured focused training block on that type of train. So for me, it's going to be a little, a little interesting in terms of like how I, my fitness has changed towards the trails and towards, uh, climbing and descending compared to in the past. Um, so I think if the weather is normal, which is, you know, probably at least a hundred in the canyons, um, I'll be targeting something in the 15 hours for sure. Uh, I think if I really nail it, I can get in the low 15s. Um, but I'll definitely play to what the course provides and kind of where my body's at, too. Like, if we, we get out there and it's obvious it's a slow year, then I'm not going to start trying to hammer splits that would get me in in a low 15 hour or anything like that.
2: Now, when, when is it, When is the race, by the way? Because I'm not sure. I'm, I, I probably won't enter, so I haven't been paying attention. <laughs> I think
0: it's June 23rd, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Yep, June 23rd. Last All weekend right, well, in June. I just followed Go Bronco Billy on Instagram, so I'll be looking for the updates and see if you guys how close you guys are on, your, on your predictions there.
1: But yeah, we'll see, right? If
0: I go for that low fifteen and blow up, I'll probably get kicked down by Bronco Billy, though.
1: <laughs> I will slay you, young drag. Oh, <laughs> look at I that! I like it. On there you go. go.
0: If I sit on there you, goes. I'm guaranteed like somewhere in the top five, I guess, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, man, it is like that's. It's a tough race, man. I, I definitely. The one thing I would say is in hundreds is you got to run your own race mm-hmm. and you can't run someone else's. Yeah. Is there a lot of dra- is
2: there a lot of drafting at that, or is it just not enough competitors trying to make a difference? Or does that-
1: you can't draft on a trail unless you want to eat it. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's, there's there's drafting in the sense of someone pulling you along just because you're trying to match their pace, I guess, but not in terms of just trying to, like, create less wind resistance or anything like that. Gotcha.
1: Yeah, that's the sign of a, of an uh, inexperienced trail runner when they're right up on someone's back end.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to take a face plant.
2: <laughs> or roll. All right, what, where, where? I know because I, I just found you on Instagram, so I got that Go Bronco Billy there. Where else? Where else can people find you at Jeff?
1: Yeah, coaching services and all that athlete stuff at GoBroncoBilly.com. dot com. Instagram, Twitter, Facebooks Go Bronco Billy, and uh, yeah, that's that's the main main places. Yeah, awesome. Well, it's good. To have, I
2: mean, like I said, we're we're trying to get these people that are on the edges of the. Uh, human performance existence i'm trying to get a hold of that competitive eater girl that eats three steaks in 20 minutes you know like she, she crushes like 200 ounces of steak <laughs> we'll see who else we can get on it's been it's been a pleasure for my part jack anything else you, you got you need to, we didn't cover or
0: yeah i think yeah i think we did a good uh, first round here and um thanks for coming on jeff uh we'll be sure to put all that all your your um ways to contact you in the show notes as well and um Maybe we can have you come back on after Western States and we'll, we'll chat about how I beat you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we
1: will. <laughs> it was great to be on, guys. I appreciate it.
2: Awesome. Awesome.
0: All right. Cool, folks. That's episode 10 of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, folks. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at ZBitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at SBakerMD. That's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram. Where you can find me at Zach Bitter. That's at Z A C H B I T T E R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker 1967. That's at S H A W N B A K E R 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast.